Thank you, brother. Church, please turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 5 through 6. Malachi chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Once you found your place in the scripture, please stand to your feet as we read God's word. Malachi chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let us pray once more. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate your word for us, that we would see how serious it is to sin against you. But Lord, may we not be overcome with despair to the point where we do not see that salvation is very real and present. For you tell us, Lord, that we have grace ever before us through Jesus Christ. Father, may this specific text point to that, and may we see that you bring both judgment and salvation. Father, open our eyes to hear, or to see, and open our ears to hear. For those who are dead in their sins and trespasses, revive their heart, God. Bring them to life so that they may believe what you've been calling them to believe. Lord, as they've continued to hear the word shared to them, through their Christian friends and pastors and churches. Lord, please be present with us now, especially by the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, please be seated. The sermon is titled, God's Love for Justice. This is part three, subtitled, The Judgment of the Lord. God's Love for Justice, part three, The Judgment of the Lord. We've been going through Malachi, and this is where we are The particular text we've been looking at was the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, and it all is focusing on God's justice, and we've looked at several different things pertaining to God's justice, and this is the third thing that we will look at. Brothers and sisters and visitors and those of you that are not Christians, you need to understand that ultimate justice is inevitable. Ultimate justice is inevitable. When you look around the world, you might think that many people get away with a lot of evil things. But I assure you that ultimate justice is inevitable. It might look like our country's justice system has failed on many accounts at times. But I tell you again that ultimate justice is inevitable. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us this in verses 27 through 28. You can follow along on the screen. It says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once... And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Scripture holds before us this dual contrast, this contrasting parallel between the bad news and the good news. Both judgment and salvation come to humanity when Christ returns the second time. 
The parallel between the good and the bad news could not be clearer. Our sin brings death and judgment, but Christ's righteousness, his perfection, brings life and salvation. Christ's resurrection brings life and salvation because it proves that he was perfect and that his death satisfies the justice and judgment of God for our sin. After his resurrection, he ascended physically to heaven, and we now await his return. Now, while he is coming to finalize our salvation, at his second coming, just as Hebrews told us, he is also coming to deal with sinners as well. His first coming, in his first coming, he dealt with sin in that he paid the price and suffered the judgment for all sinners who would ever believe and trust that Jesus is their Savior. At his second coming, he will judge those who did not repent during this era, who did not believe that he is the Savior. And so at his second coming, final death and judgment are coming, just as final eternal life and salvation. Both are physical realities in eternity. Both death and life are physical realities in eternity. Right now, you have to understand that both heaven and hell are heaven is a real joy and hell is a real pain in spiritual places. But one day, both will be physical realities as everyone is resurrected either to eternal life with God in the new creation, physical life, or raised to life for eternal judgment in the lake of fire. And this will be the final fixed state for all of humanity in one of both places, with God in peace and joy in the new creation or under God's judgment in the lake of fire. Both are for all eternity. And I assure you again that ultimate justice is coming. It is inevitable and it is unavoidable. And your heart actually longs for it. You want what is wrong to be made right. No amount of money can bribe the judge of the universe out of this case. The God who created the universe will not be stopped by an earthly attack from any army with nuclear weapons. No lawyer will be able to argue your case before an all-knowing God. There will be no postponing this date because you have another matter to attend to. When the judge of the universe arrives to this planet, it will be time to pay up and justice will be dispensed. And if your sin wasn't paid for by Christ, then it will be paid for by you. And that time will last forever, that time of reckoning. God will be judge. He will be not just judge, but he will be prosecutor. He will be the jury, and he will be the executioner. And nothing will be able to stay or stop his divine, righteous, just, and heavy hand. This is a sober warning to all of humanity. As we've been making our way through Malachi, we have seen that God has quite a few problems with Israel's sin. It's a very intense book where both Israel and we have been confronted by God over our sin. And yet, it is still a prophecy that is filled with grace and filled with salvation. Malachi is a message to Israel, and God is confronting them over six sin issues. And we are in the fourth one. The first problem, the first sin that we see from Israel is that Israel does not believe that God loves them. God says he has kept his own word. He has kept his promise to love them in spite of their continued betrayal of him. And so they were wrong, and he shows them how. Problem two, the problem is that Israel does not love God. They, they bring polluted sacrifices to the priests in the temple who 
despise their job. And these priests offer sacrifices to God that are gross and sick and stolen and corrupted and blind, thus showing that they do not love God either. Neither priests nor people love God. They have polluted the altar and defiled God's name. They have broken covenant with God once again. He is not the one who breaks the promise. They are the one who has broken covenant or broken promise. Problem three, Israel is again violating covenant with God, which is evidenced by their improper marriages. Their improper marriages are a problem with God. Here we see that the men are divorcing the women without just cause. And the men are marrying foreign women who worship false gods. The priests were doing this too. And so God is sorely displeased Ultimately, because God has given us marriage for our own blessing and well-being, but also because it ultimately portrays the everlasting union between Christ and his church. The Apostle Paul tells us that marriage was a mystery and a picture of that. Problem four, which we are in now. Israel accuses God of being unjust by praising evil and looking the other way, ignoring evil and not dispensing judgment. They accuse him of being evil, basically. And God tells them otherwise. He says a reckoning is coming. A judgment is coming. And he says a messenger will come and prepare the way for God to visit Israel. A messenger will come and prepare the way for God to visit Israel. God then calls the the messenger uh, himself. He calls himself the messenger or angel of the covenant. And so we see a couple of things. We see that John the Baptist was the pre-messenger that God talks about. And he would prepare the way for Jesus to come, God in the flesh, to visit Israel and to visit the temple where things are all messed up. And so God said, a messenger is coming to prepare the way for the messenger or angel of the covenant. And it is Jesus who fulfills the old covenant, that is the Old Testament, the Mosaic Mosaic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant. He fulfills the shadows and types and festivals and offices of the old covenant. It was all there to point to him. But Jesus is also the one who ushers in the new covenant. The new covenant. And so Christ is coming to right wrongs. To bring justice. The justice that Israel thought he was failing to dispense. He's coming to fix the old covenant. And then simultaneously he will usher in the new covenant. Indeed, he is the messenger or angel of the covenant. And Jesus is coming to earth. We saw how it would be in two stages his first coming and his second coming. In his first coming, we learned from Malachi that he would save and purify the sons of Levi. He would purify the priesthood. And we saw how Jesus did that at his first coming. This was the last sermon I preached and how he did that. And we saw how there were multiple ways in which he did that, in which he purified the sons of Levi's in the past. And we saw how he's doing that now. And perhaps in the future, he will do that. And if you missed that sermon, go back and listen to that online and you'll get all that more in detail, okay? But today we're going to press into this further, uh, uh, this further point a little bit more, this fourth problem that God has with Israel. This is part three of this fourth problem or dispute. In this fourth problem, we see that the messenger of the Lord uh, uh, who is coming to visit Israel is now going to bring judgment. And so again, the sermon is titled, God's Love for Justice, the Judgment of the Lord. In our text today, we see one major point, okay? That God's justice requires that he visit unrepentant sinners to judge them. God's justice requires that he visit unrepentant sinners to judge them. Now remember that even though we're starting our sermon today in verse 5, the immediate context goes back 
a few verses in which we see that the prophet Malachi, he is talking about the day of the Lord, right? The day of the Lord. And he's talking about how the messenger of the covenant will come to visit Israel. And he asks a very important question. He, and, and it's a rhetorical question. He says, who can stand and who can endure that dreadful day? Only, the answer is, only, only those who God saves and purifies. And that's what we saw in that text. But it's a day of judgment, the day of the Lord. Who can stand his judgment? Only those who are saved by him, the rest will be judged. And when you think of a day, like today, you generally think of two periods of the day, correct? You think of the day and you think of the night as one full day. And so it is with the coming of Christ that there are two parts. Day, which is salvation. Night, which is judgment. All right? You think of that as one full day. We... Christians, believers in Christ, were children of the day. And then there are those who are of the kingdom of darkness. But what's interesting in Malachi is that he only prophesies one coming of the Lord, one day of the Lord to Malachi. To Malachi and the Israelites, the first and the second coming, to them it kind of looked like one event. To them, when they, when they heard the word Lord, it sounded like one event and they weren't able to differentiate between the two comings. And um, theologically, this is a technical term, but we call it prophetic perspective. Prophetic perspective, meaning that from the prophet's point of view, sometimes either they weren't as concerned at parsing out all the details of the coming of the Lord in this future event, that there were two parts, and they just talked about the day of the Lord, or they didn't quite grasp the fullness of what this was talking about. Indeed, what they knew was true, but they may not have known it in its fullness. Just like you know about God now, right? The things you know are true from the word, but do you know everything about God? No. Does it mean you're intentionally leaving out information? No, you just don't know everything, or you haven't learned it yet, or you're trying to figure some things out. Same thing with them. It'd be like looking at a mountain range from a distance. When you look at the mountains over there, all you see is a brown lump in the sky, right? And from one perspective, it looks like it's one massive mountain, but as you get closer to it, you can see, oh, there's, there's a mountain there, and then a valley, and then a bigger mountain, and then a valley, and then the summit. So it is with the coming of Christ. They, they didn't see that it was broken up into a couple different mountains. They just looked from a distance and saw it as one event. So, too, this is how they see things with the coming of the Lord. Two phases, but there's one event. And today we're going to look at the second coming of Christ and what he will do. And we're focusing actually on just a very particular part of the coming of Christ, not when and all the events that transpire and the judgments. We're just, focus, we're just focusing on one thing, okay, what he will do. And the overall point is simple. A dispensing of ultimate justice is coming to sinners. A dispensing of ultimate justice is coming to sinners. In the very first part of verse 5, we see that the Lord is both judge and witness. If you look in your, at the scriptures, you'll see that in verse 5. He is both judge and witness. He's the one who's seen all of Israel's sin, which he's about to detail. He's the one who will testify to himself, the all-knowing God who never sleeps, who never gains knowledge, who has no aha moments and, oh, I get it now moments, who sees everything we do, who knows everything we think. He'll be the one that testifies as to the evils that will be uh, that Israel has done, okay? But not just Israel, the entire world. 
When you read the New Testament, you'll see that it's not just evil sinners in Israel that will be judged, but it's those in the world that he will be witness against. All right, God sees all of humanity's sin, all of humanity's evil, and it will be dealt with. But in his visit, we see that Jesus is both judge and witness. And notice that he is the one drawing near to us. He is the one drawing near to us. He is coming. It's a visit to earth, which is why we expect a physical and a visible return of Christ to earth. So who is it that he will testify against and judge? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Who is it that he will testify against and judge? What sort of sinners will be condemned at his second coming? The first thing we see is this. Number one, that God is a judge and witness against sorcerers. God is a judge and witness against sorcerers. So Israel's complaining. Where's this God of justice? I'm coming to judge. I'm coming to judge sorcerers is the first thing he says. That's what Malachi deals with next. Four different categories of sin he calls out. This is the first one. Now you've got to remember that anytime the Lord sets out a list of sins, um, it doesn't always mean that these are the only sins that God will judge if he's mentioning something. He's addressing the things that are particular to Israel at this point, okay? So any list of sins mentioned in the Bible in regards to God's judgment coming is never meant to be exhaustive or complete. You don't find a text in Scripture that lists every sin known to humanity. There are sins that are not even mentioned in there, okay? They're, they're, they're designed to be representative of sin as a whole or just sometimes to that particular situation. So we should never think that because a particular sin is not listed in a text, or in the Bible that that sin is okay and will not be judged. Scripture even has a category for sins that are yet to be invented. In Romans chapter 1, verse 30, it talks about that. Those who invent things to do that are evil. So people that come up with new ways to sin against God, if that's not mentioned in Scripture, that will be judged too. Just to make sure, if you're like, point to verse and chapter where I'm doing wrong, and you can't find it because it was never thought of before, that doesn't excuse you from doing right or, and, and not knowing that wrong is wrong, okay? It's because it's not listed in Scripture. So we see this. These people will be judged too. Now, the first sin listed is that the Lord has witnessed uh, sorcery in Israel, sorcery. Sorcery is the, and I'll explain what it is. Sorcery is the use of black magic or spells to manipulate the spirit realm so that you can get particular information so that you understand a situation better, so that you can use that knowledge for your favor in gaining advantage over others. Does that make sense? That's what sorcery is, using magic or spells to manipulate the spirit realm so that you can gain a particular outcome in a situation or gain special knowledge about a situation for your advantage. People that practice sorcery are called wizards or witches. Those may be more familiar terms to you. God detests these practices and he deems them sinful. They're occultic ways of manipulating people and circumstances for one's own selfish advantage. Rather than trusting God's sovereignty, rather than trusting God's word in a situation and the wisdom that he's given, these people are not praying to him, um, and they're using other attempts to uh, use mystical powers to control people or to control a situation or to communicate with the spirit realm or demons so that a situation works in their favor. In essence, sorcery is, it's my will be done via the dark arts. It's selfish, it's demonic, and that evil spirits are involved. And it generally is used to bring about harm to another person. 
That's not, there's nothing good about it. Think about it. Demons, manipulation, selfishness, harm, not trusting God. That's all sinful. Galatians 5 tells us that those who, and by the way, just trying to manipulate people in general is sinful, okay? Always trying to get the situation in your favor. That's, that's selfish, even though it's not black magic or sorcery. Those are still sinful things to do, okay? Galatians 5 tells us that those who practice sorcery will not get into the kingdom of God. So if you thought sorcery was not that big of a deal, then consider the punishment in hell for all eternity the sorcerers will get. In Exodus 22.18, we see that if someone was guilty of sorcery in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant that Israel was under, then that person was to be executed. The physical punishment should warn us that God takes this and all sins seriously. Unless we think this, this doesn't hit home for us and, uh, us, and well, this could never happen really to somebody in the church. I'm reminded of a church member from a former church that I pastored from in 2009, where a member told me that they were going to go to a palm reader to try and understand their life situation. And I had to rebuke her. And I sternly told her that she was not to go and participate in such things. I told her to seek the wisdom of God and his word and pray to God for help. But she was not to go and do such a thing. And while palm reading and sorcery are technically different, and, and technically speaking, they are the same in regards to divination. Divination, big word in that realm, it is trying to attain secret information about your life. Divination is trying to attain secret information about your life. Sorcery uses spells and spirits to try to gain this information, while palm reading tries to use the, line, the lines on your hand to try and know future events and your life's outcome. All right? There's nothing there, Albert, I promise, okay? <laughs> He's writing notes on his hand. That's what he was doing, trying to read them, okay? Now, each are of the occult, and both will fall under divine judgment. It's not entirely clear what situation is going on in Israel, but this much we know. Since men were guilty of sinfully marrying women that were devoted to false pagan gods, because that's what's happening in Israel. Let's piece it together. Former lessons, priests and people, the, the men are divorcing their wives, marrying pagan women who worship false gods. Then it's likely that these sort of practices were going on in Israel, not just among the citizens, but also among the priests. Remember that no miraculous events had taken place in some time in Israel. They had just come out of captivity all right, after being punished by God for seven years for breaking covenant with him. So there's no miraculous events that have taken place in Israel. The Lord hadn't visited the second temple with his glory. He promises, though, he's coming, this, the messenger of the covenant. Um, and so we talked about that last time, that the people may have been growing weary of waiting for God to make his manifest presence known. Where is God? They don't know what's going on. So they, it seems that they may have looked to sorcery to answer their questions about life and about their culture and about what was going on in their nation. Looking to sorcery to give them information about their future and their current understanding of their situation. Whatever the reason, I don't know. Israel was into sorcery at the time or the Lord went and brought it up. God, Jesus in the flesh, was coming to save and to purify a remnant of Israel and the sons of Levi. And he was coming to judge the rest who would not turn to him in repentance and faith, who would not turn away from that sin. As a side note, you can include these other occultic things that God forbids because they all seek secret knowledge to try and discern your life circumstances or the future or something along those lines. These are all condemned. Tarot cards, mediums and communicating with the dead, Ouija boards, psychic readings, horoscopes. All these are the occult and condemned by God even if they're not mentioned specifically in Scripture. 
Because they all seek to get secret information about your life when God doesn't give you every detail about your life. I'd even throw praying to dead Christians or saints in this category because we aren't to try to communicate with the dead. We are to pray to God and talk to Him only in the spirit realm. Occultic practices, again, they do not rely on the wisdom of God, the power of God, nor the supremacy of God, nor His sovereignty. In fact, they're all false substitutes for God, and they're condemned along with its practitioners that do not repent and come to Jesus Christ. Next, we see that God will judge adulterers. The word adulterer means to render something impure by adding something to it. You adulterate water by adding dirt to it. You adulterate a marriage by having sexual relations with someone other than your covenant spouse that you promise to forsake all others and to cling to that person only. In adultery, you've added a third person into the realm of marital intimacy. We've already seen in previous sermons that the Israelites and the priests were guilty of defiling their marriages by divorcing their spouses and marrying women who worshipped false gods. They were committing adultery by not having proper reason to leave their spouses. Malachi condemns these sinful divorces and sinful marriages. And it's very likely that adultery took place, them men having adultery with pagan women, which would lead to divorces and them remarrying the pagan women. Maybe not in all cases, but there definitely was in some cases. And for the Israelites, adultery was also a capital offense, deserving death, just like sorcery. We see that in Leviticus 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 22. And so for a minute, I'm going to address sexual promiscuity in general. And I understand that we have younger children here. So parents, please be mindful that we're, going to be, uh, we're not going to be filthy in the way that we talk, but we'll be very direct in the way that we talk in the next few minutes. And while I don't advise hiding your children from the things that God mentions in any part of his word, we still want to be mindful of how we discuss these things. We want to discuss them properly and biblically and, and, uh, and godly. We don't want to be crass nor do we want to bury our heads in the sand as if these subjects do not arise in God's word or in the world. Your kids will be harmed, I promise you, if you wait till they're 18 to discuss these things with them. It's my belief that proper biblical sexuality needs to be taught young to our children before they are polluted with the world's thinking, and I promise you they are starting very young. Sex ed does not come anymore in fifth and sixth grade they're, they're trying to teach their way of thinking to preschoolers and kindergartners. So to wait, like when I was younger, we didn't hear about this stuff in school until we were older, and we had to get a permission slip signed by our parents. Now they just shove it down your kids' throats. So to be wise in this world would be to step up and teach these things before waiting four, five, six years when they're already indoctrinated and now against the things that God has said. You hear me? Okay. But I do understand that if you want to discuss these things privately with your kids, if you do and you don't want them to hear about adultery and sex and the sins that God condemns in the Bible, then that's your right as a parent. Feel free to take a five or six minute stroll around the property if you need to. It will be okay. I promise you I won't be offended. But I do advise you to discuss these things with your kids because they are appropriate for them to learn now. And what God teaches is holy and it's not perverted and it's not dirty. Okay? Intimacy in the marriage realm is something God created, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Sexual promiscuity. It reduces us to beasts and treats others as as objects of self-gratification. That means that you reduce people to things, 
objects that serve your sexual desires, and that's all they are to you. Objects of pleasure for you, selfishness. It reduces sexual intimacy to an act of taking and not giving or service. I use those words specifically. It reduces intimacy in the sexual realm to an act of taking and not giving or serving the other person. Marital intimacy is supposed to be an act of giving and serving. Husbands, you're supposed to love and serve your wives this way. Wives, you're supposed to love and serve your husbands this way. And promiscuity is about taking. Promiscuity wants intimate relationships without covenant relationships, without the promise. Promiscuity wants pleasure without a promise. It wants the blessing without a bond. Adultery, a specific kind of sexual promiscuity, says that faithfulness is not a virtue, that it is not good, but faithlessness and selfishness are. It distorts the gospel picture of Christ's eternal love for his church, his faithful love, his giving love, his union with the church. Remember in the previous sermon what Malachi said about adultery. He said it's treacherous. It's a betrayal of not just the women, but of the covenant people of God. It's a violation of the covenant with God, adultery is. And since they were all in covenant with God, all Israelites, to violate the covenant with God was to violate covenant with each other. Did you hear that? Their sin wasn't just a sin against their spouses, but against the nation of Israel who are all in covenant with God. Let's, let's think about this in the church. I am united to Christ, and so are you believers. We are brothers and sisters in covenant with God. Therefore, if you cheat on your spouse, you sin against me and other sisters in the church and other brothers. How terrible it is to not be able to trust your spouse who made a promise to you. That's a false oath. That is a broken promise, and God will judge that person who remains an adulterer. Hebrews 13.4 tells us that we are to keep the marriage bed pure. Pure. You are to fight for its purity. How? You fight for its purity by keeping your vows and not lying with another person to whom you are not married? You fight for your marriage bed by making sure that you fulfill your marital duties and taking care of the other person's sexual desires. That's how you fight for its purity. In other words, you make sure that you drink from your own well water, but the flip side is that you make sure your spouse is not thirsty and tempted to drink from another person's well water. Are you hearing me? Because that's how scripture talks. This is what I meant earlier when I said that sexual intimacy is supposed to be an act of service, not of self-gratification. One where you serve the other person. One reason people get married is to honor God and serve him. Another is so that they do not burn in the flesh. That is, so that they are less likely to be tempted in sexual sins and to go that route. They get married in order for those God-given desires to be acted out on properly and faithfully and not sinfully. So rather than remaining in sin and fornication, they get married because they love God and they don't want to sin anymore, and so they are able to fulfill that biblically and correctly and honorably. And so your spouse, brothers and sisters that are married, and those of you that plan to get married one day, this is for you as well, Your spouse then becomes your God-given partner to help you ward off temptation. Husbands and wives, every night you sleep next to the gift that God has given you to help you in that area and to love you and serve you in that area. As spouses, you are supposed to take care of the other person's 
desires in that area. You are to serve the person and they are to serve you. In doing so, you become a giving person in that area so that the other person is taken care of. You become the God-given means by which they ward off sexual temptation. Did you hear that? You are the one that God has given to them so that desires for sexual intimacy are fulfilled. And in doing so, you help them fight off sin. I hate to say it. There are some people who don't love their spouses enough in this way. I've heard it from both sides, men and women. So it's not just a guy thing, if you think that that's what I'm trying to advocate for here. I hear it from both sides. Each of us is responsible for our own thoughts and actions. Let me say that again, okay, in a different way. If your spouse commits adultery, that is on them, not you. Nevertheless, there's an aspect in which you are defrauding and robbing your spouse, Scripture says, by withholding conjugal rights. You are robbing them because they belong to you and you belong to them. In defrauding your spouse, it becomes harder for them to resist sexual temptations. That's why 1 Corinthians says that neither husbands nor wives have rights over their own body. You belong to the spouse, and they belong to you. Therefore, you are to serve your spouse and make sure that Satan does not get a foothold in their life by bringing temptation. You protect your spouse from sin by serving them in this way. And yet... You may do this with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You may love your spouse this way, and it's still possible that they may still commit adultery. That's where the judge of the universe comes in. He will be a judge and witness against adultery and adulterers. God gave marriage to humanity for your own spiritual and physical benefit, for your own pleasure, for reproduction, for recreation, And he gave it to be a picture of Christ's eternal love for the church. And he will judge those that destroy that picture. Let me also say that while Malachi hits hard on adultery, that is not the only sexual sin in the Bible. God forbids rape and incest, bestiality, homosexuality, lust, polygamy, fornication, which is sex prior to marriage. The only sexual activity that God endorses and blesses is sex within a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. So it is not okay to lust in your heart after another person. It's not okay to live together and act like husband and wife when you're not married. It's not okay to cheat on your spouse. It's not okay to look at dirty videos or pictures. It's not okay to be attracted to children, which some psychologists in this world are trying to advocate for. Perverts. That that will be judged as if it's some sort of preference. Our society promotes and gives a thumbs up to all sorts of sexual sins, but we we did not create ourselves. We did not create this, this thing called sex and intimacy and marriage. And since we didn't create it, we don't have the right to dictate how it's supposed to go. That comes from the one who created it, God. And therefore, we live within the confines that God has called us to. And though we live in the confines, it is not meant to be a confining and restricting thing that reduces your joy. It is meant to be something that protects you and honors God and glorifies him. You don't exist for your own happiness. Church, you exist to glorify God. And that is one way that you glorify God is honoring him in this area and keeping it proper and doing it in the way that he said. Okay, We don't get to put the limits on it or the constraints on it. Okay. Proper sexuality points to a joy and a union that cannot be explained in words this side of eternity. 
What I mean is that the delight and joy that we get from proper marital relations, this pales in comparison to the eternal union we have in Christ. God has given humanity a very special language, that of marriage and sexual intimacy. And it is a blessing to experience it in marriage. But it's a fraction of the delight we will experience in the presence of God. So don't mess with the marriage union by committing adultery and other sexual sins. Fight for its purity. Husbands, do your part. Wives, do your part. You love each other. You take care of each other because God will surely visit humanity and he will be a judge and witness against adulterers and those who are sexually promiscuous if they do not find salvation in Christ. Number three, God is a witness and judge against perjurers. Perjurers. Well, if you thought judgment was only for the big sins, we thought wrong. Perjurers are included in this list of sinners that, will, that God will judge at his visit. Or, uh, yeah, when he comes again. A perjurer is a specific kind of liar. It is to take an oath that you are going to tell the truth and then, or do something and then to lie about whatever it is that you promised to tell the truth about or not fulfill the oath that you made. It's, it's, in, the, in Scripture, people often use God's name in connection with a promise to do something. It's a term that we often use also, perjury, that we also use in courtrooms. Okay? That's not the only time oaths are made. But in our country, if we promise to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and then you lie under oath, you commit perjury. You promised to tell the truth, and you did not. Anytime you make an oath to do something or to tell the truth and you don't, then you're a perjurer. If you violate your marriage covenants, because what did you do on your marriage day, on your wedding day? You made an oath. I promise to love you and to forsake all the others in sickness and in health, for rich or for poor. In every situation... I promise to be devoted to you. I promise because God is witnessing this. And then you cheat on your spouse? You're a perjurer, not just an adulterer. Marriage is an oath or vow before God. You are to love your spouse properly. For how long? Well, what did you promise? Till when? Till God separates you at death. This week I had an an uncle pass away. I wasn't super close to him, but I was to his wife. Growing up, they lived in my grandmother's house. And so as a young kid visiting grandma, you're around your aunts and uncles a lot. And they were the younger younger uh, uncles and aunts that were living at home. And her husband had cancer. And so the past few months, his health has rapidly deteriorated. It just came as a surprise to all of them. And my brother, by God's grace, was able to go and share the gospel with him. And I texted my aunt. And I told her I prayed that Uncle Frank knew the Lord. And she texted back, he knew him as Savior. That Uncle J- uh, you, uh, your bro- my brother Jacob came and shared the gospel with him and that he had believed. And so I was praising God that he, that he saved another sinner. But one of the things I told my aunt, I said, I want you to know that you set a good example for your daughters, my cousins. I said, you kept your oaths. You kept your vows before God. You pleased God. Because you promised till death do you part. You did, what, you did what you said you would do. And in a world where people don't do that, I said, I just want to thank you for loving your husband and doing what you promised to do. I wanted to encourage her and bless her and let her know that it was not all in vain or that it wasn't, it wasn't just pain that she was dealing with, but she was able to witness the grace of God and her being able to keep her marriage vows. Courts are where justice is supposed to happen. Courts are where wrongs are supposed to be righted. It's where criminals are supposed to get their just due. 
It's where the victim is supposed to be properly compensated. And if lies are introduced in a courtroom setting, the chances are increased that justice will not prevail. Our God is a God of justice, and I promise you ultimate justice is coming in even courtroom settings where injustice takes place. Injustice takes place. God will have the final say on the day of judgment, and he hates it when people lie and don't keep their word. Why? Because our God always keeps his word, and he never lies. He never breaks an oath, and he never fails to tell the truth. Conversely, Satan is the father of all lies. In John 8, 44, Jesus told the Pharisees, listen, you guys don't believe me. You don't believe me because you're of the devil. And you're, the devil's a liar and he's been a liar since the beginning. He's your father. And so you hear the truth and you don't recognize it because all you know is lies and evil. Satan's character is, is of lies. They couldn't see the truth because they were in his kingdom. Lying of any kind will be judged by our Lord. Revelation 21, Steve preached to Revelation. Revelation 21 tells us that cowards, those without faith, murderers, the sexually immoral person, sorcerers, idol worshipers, idol worshipers, and even liars, it says, will have their part in the lake of fire. Does that sound like lying of, of any kind is good before God? The answer is no. Our God is a God of truth. Jesus is the truth. It's, he, it's who he is. It's what he speaks. And Satan goes around lying to people, does he not? Do you remember the scheme Satan pulled in the garden? I hope you do. It's very familiar. He crafted a little speech to deceive Eve. Eve, you're not going to die if you eat the fruit that God told you not to eat of. In fact, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. God is withholding something awesome from you. You want to be like God, don't you? You know the irony of the situation? They were already created in the likeness of God. They were already made like God. And Satan's like, you want to be like God? She should have said, God already made me in his likeness. There's nothing that you can add to me that will make me any better than what God already created me to be. So don't come at me with that bull. You're a liar. Satan couldn't add to this likeness because God already made it so. Yet Eve thought there was something else that, to attain that God withheld from her. And that's how Satan packages all sin. He's a schemer. And so she believed the scheming lie of Satan and then gave some fruit to her husband to eat, and Adam did eat as well. The result is that humanity, all of us, were plunged to hell because of a belief in a lie about food and God's goodness. Lying is bad. Friends, do you see that Satan has not stopped his lies? He tells people all the time that, that, that the things that God tells us to abstain from are actually good things intended to bring about a fuller sense of humanity and divinity in us. That you are not complete unless you do this evil thing. You can throw all kinds of things on that. People changing their gender. People running after careers with all their heart, mind, and soul. People being... uh, Health nuts to the extreme, not that we shouldn't be healthy. You throw it all in there. And people chase these things as if they are the ultimate thing in life. When really, these things can lead us away from pure humanity and plunge us to hell. Satan's crafty. He's a schemer. He wants you to believe his lies and to perish in hell forever with him. He doesn't love God. He surely doesn't love you. So he will tell you that what God says is right is wrong. And what God says is wrong is right. So please don't believe his lies. He will be judged for this. He will swear before you that he's telling the truth. But all that comes from his mouth is lies. It's part of his character. So do not believe it. 
Believe Jesus instead before it's too late. And as I mentioned a bit ago, perjury comes with an oath. In Scripture, again, oaths were often made in the name of the Lord as, the, as God being the witness. I swear before God I will do this or that or promise to tell the truth. And when an oath was broken, God's name was profaned and made dirty. In other words, a holy God was brought into a dirty situation because his name was invoked in that oath and the oath was broken. Leviticus 19.12 says, not to swear falsely by the, name of the, by the name of God. Do not swear falsely by the name of God and thus profane or pollute his name. And that's what lies do. You wear the name of God everywhere you go, Christian. And to lie is to pollute Christ's name. Do you hear that? It dirties his name, so don't do it. Okay? Those who do not want to repent of lying will be judged. Jesus is the Lord. And so the reality is that we are to let our yes be yes and no be no. We aren't to take the Lord's name in vain by swearing falsely. And if for some reason you have to invoke the name of God under oath, then you better tell the truth or else you will defile God's name. Israel was committing perjury. They were how? Well, first of all, in their broken covenant marriages, they, they weren't fulfilling their vows, but likely in other ways too. And God saw it all, and that's all that matters. Just like God sees our lies and perjury and broken promises. Can you imagine if God broke his word and covenant with you? Can you? Just think about that for a second. Can you imagine on the day of judgment, you stand before the Lord and you're like, man, I'm so happy to be saved and I'll enter the new creation. And God says, nah, not for you. But Lord, I called upon your name and I repented and put my faith in Christ. And you said if I did that, that I would be saved. I lied. Can you imagine that devastation? You're like, that's not right. Neither are our lies. And God will not do that. God keeps his word. Telling the truth is being like God. It's part of God's character and attributes. And we are called to imitate that. Those who don't will be judged to hell for violating God's name and likeness. Ultimate justice is coming. The fourth sin we see is that God is a judge and witness against oppressors. God is a judge and witness against oppressors. Do you know that God is a liberator and not an oppressor? Do you remember how Egypt oppressed the Israelites and God liberated them and took good care of Israel? Do you know why God will judge oppressors? Because God didn't create us to be oppressors, but lovers of mankind and lovers of him. In this last sin, we see that God will judge the oppressor, the violator, the exploiter, the one who crushes another. Malachi breaks it down further into the kinds of people that were being treated this way. Hired workers, widows, the fatherless and the sojourners, foreigners. Church, it's important to see that Israel did not just exist to show people how to be right with God, which is one reason they existed, through their sacrificial system and holidays. It all pointed to God's holiness and how sinners could be reconciled. That's one reason they existed, right? They also were called to show how humanity is supposed to treat each other. Being made in the likeness of God means that we display his attributes in his, in, in his creation, We have dominion over this world by living in this world with God's nature shining through us, his likeness. That means that Israel had godly obligations to its citizens and to its foreigners. And so do we as Christians. Employers in Israel were expected to properly pay those who worked for them. To withhold a paycheck when you have agreed to pay someone for working for you is wrong. Right? How many of you have have ever not gotten a paycheck? Uh, Maybe it was a mistake. HR or county made 
a mistake and you didn't get your check, you're like, I want my check now, right? And you're just furious, right? That, this company, I'm through with them, right? And then you get your paycheck, okay? It happens. Mistakes happen. But that's perjury as well. When you promise to pay somebody for their work. You shouldn't hire a worker if you don't have the funds to pay them once the work is done. When you work, don't you agree that a paycheck is due you? We all agree, right? Okay. It's not a gift. They, they've never put a bow on my paycheck and stuck it under the Christmas tree. Okay? It's not a gift. It's an agreement to trade labor for money. I give you my sweat, you give me money. And hopefully, my sweat made you more money than what you paid me, and so that you got money, and everybody wins. But it's wrong to say, ah, you gave me your sweat, I made some money, but I'm not going to pay you. It's wrong to not just oppress workers, but also the widows and the fatherless. I'm going to lump these two together because they're, they're often named together in Scripture. James 1.27, Deuteronomy 10.18, talk about the widow and the fatherless. God is the one who executes justice for the widow, father, and the foreigner. Somehow, the widows and fatherless orphans were being oppressed in Israel. doesn't give us detail, but this could still be related to the sinful marriage issue. If men are leaving their spouses, if that spouse had a mother-in-law who was widowed, which likely is the case in many situations, then you're mistreating widows by simply leaving your spouse. Because oftentimes, those men were caring for others in their family, not just their own wife and children. If leaving their wife unbiblically meant they abandoned them to go marry a pagan woman, now there are fatherless children in Israel. So maybe it's through these divorces that they were abandoning their children and harming widows. If that's the case, then these women and children were in a world of hurt, like the account of Ruth and Naomi. You remember that account? When I preached through that, it could be that widows and orphans were oppressed and neglected in, in other ways too. But the Lord cares about both of these people. The Lord, this world wasn't meant to have widows. This world wasn't meant to have orphans. That's all a result of the fall and sin. Those are all the evil effects of the fall and sin in this world. Israel was supposed to help the widows and the orphans by allowing them to glean in the fields at harvest time. Widows and orphans were allowed to gather crops that were dropped or left behind by farmers. It's part of their welfare system. God told them to do this. The owner of the fields, they, by God, they were commanded not to go back and send their workers into the field to get crops that they dropped or didn't get the first time around. That's for the poor. That's for the unfortunate. That's for the widows. That's for the orphans. That's for the helpless. Leave that for them. That's your charity. The owners of the fields weren't allowed to do that. They were to help the poor. Again, it's a welfare program. Oppression would be sending your workers back into the fields to get every last grain of barley or wheat so that those in poverty and in need had nothing to glean and to collect. Oppression of the widow and orphans means that the Israelites did not love their neighbors as themselves. They didn't love fellow image bearers of God, and they did not recognize that, that they were supposed to, uh, they did not honor God in this way, recognizing that. Church, I know we're, we're pro-life. That is wonderful. I wish the church was also known, and I'm talking about the church at large, was also known for being massively pro-adoption. Because we're to care about the fatherless. Many of you don't know, in 1998, my wife and I adopted a child before we had Macy. 
She's much older, about 18 years older than Macy, so they never actually lived together. Um, but we adopted her into our family. She was a teenager at that time, and we were young and dumb. Not because we adopted, we were just young and dumb, right? We're 23, 24, I was barely in ministry a few years, and there was a teenager in our student ministry that had no parents. She endured everything horrible that you can imagine a young child and baby would endure from emotional abuse to physical abuse to sexual abuse, just bouncing around house to house. And so survival mechanisms kick in, running away from situations that aren't pleasant, lying, cover stories, just all became a normal way to survive in this world. And we adopted this teenager into our family. We were 24, she was 14. The law permitted, but actually did not permit us to adopt her, but we went to court and the judge gave us a, a special grant that we might be able to adopt her and get her out of the foster care system. I'm just saying, I, I, wish, I wish the church was known for being pro-life in that way. It just had a, I wish it had a stronger reputation. I know there are a lot of Christians that do, and there are a lot of Christian organizations that, that help with that. I just, wish it, I just wish it was bigger. Maybe you can pray for that. Maybe you can pray for God to stir some hearts in our congregation so that somebody might want to go out and adopt. We adopted before we even have our own natural child. I just, I, just, I just wish that was the case. If we're going to care about the widows and the, the orphans, we need to be proactive. We need to be intentional. And in doing this, God will bless us. We might suffer hard consequences. That was not an easy adoption as I think back on it. I, I wish there were some people that could have given us some wisdom, but nobody really wanted us to do this, so we were on our own. But nevertheless, uh, even in talking to our daughter, she, she wants to adopt. And I was just like blown away. I mean, she's not even married. So wait till you're married, Macy. I would say that, right? Um, there's some advice. But uh, do you know why adoption is so important? It's the heart of God. Every single one of you are adopted if you're a believer in Christ. You have no right to this, his family. But he brought you in through Christ. He gave you the right. It wasn't inherit. Inherit. Would you pray for, maybe our church could be just a bright spot in the high desert one day for adoptions and people would be like, man, that church is crazy. Look what they do. Crazy in a good way. They love orphans. We were once in a foreign spiritual land under the rule of Satan who miserably oppressed us, and God set us free. Your loving treatment of foreigners, let me tell you, in this land shows the appreciation you have for the salvation that God brought you. I'm talking about travelers now, foreigners. Let me backtrack a little bit just because I definitely deviated from my notes here, but Deuteronomy 10.18 tells us that the welfare system that God created to help those in need um, that every year the Israelites were supposed to bring a tithe of their produce. Every three years, every three years they were to bring a tithe of their produce, a tenth of their produce that was set aside to feed the Levites, but it was also set aside to feed the widows, the fatherless, and the foreigners. And the foreigners. And in doing this, God would take care of the hurting and the needy, and in return he promised to bless Israel in everything that their hand touched. That was part of their covenant. 
And so when we treat foreigners in this land as needy, need of help and integration, of course, proper laws need to be obeyed. You can't just open the borders and allow everybody to bum rush you. You can't properly care for people that way. Okay? Things need to be planned out. Nevertheless, I wonder if you've ever made the connection that your loving treatment of foreigners in this land shows the appreciation that you have for the salvation that God brought you, that you were once under a different kingdom, being oppressed by Satan, and you were trapped. He sealed those borders tight, and Christ came in and kicked those doors down and brought you out of that camp. And you're in a new land now. And you were mistreated in a different land, and you, you found refuge in Christ. And your treatment of others is, no, is, is the same way that God treated us when we were oppressed. And so it's important to love others. Okay? It's not about being woke. It's not really a social issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's about worship. Has God saved you? Has it affected the way that you live now and think and treat others? That's worship. Rightly responding to God. Now, we just went through four sins that God will judge when Christ comes again. The common thread that runs through all these sinners is that they do not fear God. That's what Scripture says in Malachi. They do not fear God, the Lord of hosts. The reason sinners continue to sin, and sinners in general, not just here in Malachi, is they do not fear the Lord or His coming judgment because they think He doesn't care uh, about it or gives approval to the sin. But I tell you that Jesus is returning to judge sinners. It will be a time when rebels are consumed by the Lord who is a fire. His patience with sinners will come to an end, and justice will be carried out. Israel cried for justice. They thought God fell asleep on the throne, but boy, is justice coming in finality, and it's unstoppable. He will come again, as he said, he'd come the, just like he said he'd come the first time, just like the Messiah was promised in Genesis 3.15. Now, I've shared a lot of bad news. There's good news, though. You need to see it in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Wait a minute, Mr. Josh. I just thought you said all these sinners are going to be judged by God. Here he says that Jacob or Israel will not be consumed. Yes, judgment is coming. But God says in verse 6, what he says in verse 6 is true, though. It doesn't negate what we just talked about. It's not contradictory. You must remember that the Lord does not change. In other words, he keeps his promises. One of those promises was to love and to save Israel. And another promise was to judge them as well. So there's dual promises here. God keeps his word. The people will not be consumed. Those that will not be consumed are the ones that God has elected to save, that he's going to purify, as we read about in a previous sermon. God keeps his word. Those who turn to Jesus for salvation turn from their sin and believe God's word concerning the Messiah, the Savior, the messenger of the covenant, they will be saved. If you recall from last sermon, God was going to judge and purify Levi and Israel from their sin. Salvation was coming. Those people are the ones who turn to Christ for salvation. And more are still coming to Jesus as Savior even now. The ones judged here in verse 5 are the ones who have not come to Christ for cleansing, who have not welcomed the messenger of the covenant, Jesus Christ. Forgiveness and salvation is not theirs because they still want their sin more than their Savior. And verse 6 is a reminder of believing Israelites and how they are not consumed. The children of Jacob. 
The God who does not change keeps the promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all those who look to the Messiah for salvation. God's promise to make a great nation that descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that promise was kept that a great nation will come from Abraham. That great nation was twofold. It wasn't singular. There was the ethnic nation of Israel, and then there was the spiritual nation of Israel. The spiritual nation is made of all people, Israelites and non-Israelites, Israelites and Gentiles. That spiritual nation is made of all believers in the world who believe that the Messiah, Jesus, descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in God's kingdom ways. They've always consisted of Israelites and Gentiles living together under King Jesus. The Savior has always been for the world. And so Jacob is not consumed in entirety precisely because God does not change but keeps his word to save those who call upon the name of the Lord. And this goes for the world too. While the world will be judged for its rebellion against God, there is another sense in which the world will not be consumed. There will be people from all tribes and tongues and nations and languages that will be saved on the day when Jesus comes again. On that day, instead of eternity in the lake of fire, they will experience final purification and final salvation and final transformation called glorification in which new bodies match the new man or the new woman on the inside and we will never sin again. That, will one, that day will be a blessing for us when we, when we long for that to come when we see Jesus face to face. For those that despise the Lord, that will be a day of darkness and dread, fear, and trembling as the eternal sentence of death is pronounced over them. So for those of you listening that are not Christians, this message is primarily for you and all unbelievers who continue in rebellion against God. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ for salvation. Believe that he died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sin. Believe that he rose again to give you life everlasting with him in this new creation that is coming. This is a loving warning from God that a day of reckoning is coming in which sinners will be eternally consumed forever. But today God is drawing near with a warning and a message of grace that like us, you can be rescued from the wrath to come. You do not have to be destroyed. So please turn to Christ today. Please come talk to me if you need to. Uh, Talk to another believer, maybe somebody who invited you here that can share more with you about what Scripture says so that you can know how to be saved and we can help answer any questions that you might have. For us Christians, let us now rejoice in the gospel, rejoice in the rescue and the redemption that the Lord has brought us. We're going to receive communion in just a minute. We're going to sing another song. Let us first pray. Heavenly Father, we bless your name. We thank you that 